0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: Hello, Saints. I'm in First John, and we're going to read the first chapter. So if you stand for the reading of God's Word, it reads, beginning in chapter 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we are in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus the Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us.
2: bit of method to the madness, or perhaps a bit of madness to the method, of the last several weeks of teaching after we spent three weeks talking about theodicy. We then talked about the biblical covenants so that you would be familiar with the various covenants. Last week we emphasized Passover and the inception of the new covenant. And I have been promising you for weeks That we are going to get to the book of Galatians, but once we get there, that book is all about the difference between the Old Covenant, the Law Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, and the New Covenant. So it was necessary that you be familiar with the New Covenant and the previous covenants before we get to the book of Galatians. But then last week was also Resurrection Sunday, and we spent most of the morning talking about the connection to Passover and talking about the death of Christ, that he actually accomplished the salvation of his people, that he did not go to Calvary in the hope that somebody would be saved, that he went there and actually fully saved his people. And then at the very end of last week, after the communion service, we talked about the fact that he is alive and that he is coming back to get us. This week, then, we're going to talk about the necessity of the resurrection of Christ. Because really, if you don't have the resurrection of Christ, if that is not a historic, physical, literal fact, then you don't have Christianity I don't know what you end up with. It's some kind of mishmash religion, but it is certainly not Christianity. All of Christianity is centered on Christ and his finished accomplished work. But if he did not resurrect, if he did not ascend, if he is not now at the right hand of the Father, then we don't have an advocate with the Father. We don't have anybody to stand in the gap between us and the judgment of God. And it is important that Jesus, an actual man, a physical, literal, fleshly human being, it's important that he died and that he got up again. This is not some kind of Illusion, it's not some kind of allegory, he was not some sort of phantasm, he was an actual literal man who actually literally died, who actually literally got up from the grave again. And without those elements, you don't have genuine biblical Christianity. So the centrality of the resurrection cannot be overstated. If you're going to understand Christianity correctly, you have to understand the resurrection. I'm going to show you several examples this morning where the writers of the New Testament place the resurrection of Christ front and center. They emphasize that because without that, not only do we not have Christianity fully orbed, but as I said, we have no hope. When you die, you're going to stand before God in all your sin, and you're going to have to give account for yourself, and you're not going to have anybody to stand between you and the judgment of God. You're not going to have that advocate who is constantly pleading our case for us. One of the interesting aspects of the ways that the New Testament writers write is they, in talking about the resurrection, never question whether or not God exists. God is a given. They know that God exists. And so the importance of the resurrection is that judgment is coming, and either judgment is coming for absolutely everybody, or there are some people who are in Christ Christ is in them. They are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and their salvation is guaranteed by the resurrection. Take away the resurrection. You don't have Christianity. So that's the plan for the morning. So let's start with the fact that the Pharisees and Jesus were so often at odds with each other. And fair enough. I mean, if Jesus was who he said he was... And then he walked around saying things like, you're whitewashed sepulchers. Or he said, you're just a den of vipers. Or he said, you compass land and sea to make one proselyte. And when you have made him, you've made him twice the child of hell that you are. He was in the temple overturning tables and telling them that they had turned the temple of God into a den of thieves. Okay, now, they could ignore all that if he was just another guy. But if he was, in fact, who he said he was, if he was the son of God, then not only is he completely correct, and they are hell-bound, they are going to stand in judgment before God, but he has also undermined their political and social authority and power. They had the ability to wield authority over the temple, and the temple was a place of tremendous mercantile and marketplace and so when he gathered followers to himself and then pointed at the pharisees and said now they're wrong follow me you can see why the pharisees would say wait a minute this guy is directly contending with us and so they would ask him by what authority do you do these things because they wanted to know what authority do you actually have? You're saying some tremendously upsetting things that is going to upset our long-standing religion. Where do you get the authority to do this? And so finally they insisted that he give them a sign, because as Paul said, the Greeks seek wisdom, the Jews want a sign. And so, in keeping with their nature to want some kind of sign, some kind of proof some kind of demonstration that Jesus was who he said he was, in Matthew 12, 38, we read this. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous genea generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. So now Jesus reached back into the days of Jonah and said, that was prophetic of me. I am the fulfillment, I am the satisfaction of what Jonah prefigured. And then he tells you in what way it applies to him. For as Jonah was three days and three nights, the NASB renders it in the belly of the sea monster, because the Greek term is literally a large sea creature. And so the King James went with a whale. But we don't really know. It was just a very large sea creature of some type that swallowed Jonah. And he was three days and three nights in the belly of that sea creature. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what did Jesus just do? Even before his death, burial, and resurrection, he says, I'm going to die. I'm only going to stay dead for three days and three nights, and I'm going to be up again. And that's the only sign you get. Even Herod, when Jesus stood before him, wanted to see a sign, do a miracle, show me something. But Jesus steered it all to the resurrection. All to his death, all to his burial, all to getting up again, to the fact that he would only be dead for three days, three nights, and he placed the resurrection front and center in the entirety of the Christian faith, and he was clear to say, that's the only sign you get. So, If you've ever wrestled with Christianity, anybody in this room ever wrestled with Christianity? If you've ever wrestled with Christianity and you want to settle it once and for all, settle the resurrection. If you can settle that, then everything else is going to fall into place. I have known people through the years who have discounted Christianity for various different reasons, And I always go back to the same thing. I always tell them the same thing, which is settle the resurrection question. If you can settle that, then you can settle everything else. People say, well, a worldwide flood. I have a hard time with that. Or even Jonah. I have a hard time with a guy being swallowed by a big fish for three days. Three. I have a hard time with it. I knew a woman out in California who rejected Christianity because she said, well, I've had children, and I know that a virgin birth is impossible. It doesn't matter what it is you're stuck in. Whatever part of Christianity you're having difficulty with, settle the resurrection question. Because if he did resurrect again, if he was dead for three days and three nights, like he said, and then got up again, then he's everything you need to know about God and eternity. Mm -hmm. And whatever else he has to tell you, if he validates... Jonah in the whale, like he just did here. If he validates the worldwide flood, like he did in mentioning Noah and the flood. If he validates the Adam and Eve story, like he did. If he validates those things and he's the one who got up from the dead, then he is the best authority you're ever going to find in your life on whether or not the rest of the Bible is true. So settle the resurrection question And then the rest of the Bible will make sense to you. Jesus said, it's a sign. It all comes down to that. Either he got up out of the grave or he didn't. And if he did, that's the single most amazing fact in human history. If he did, then you can be satisfied that God is satisfied. You can feel free. You can have hope. You can have confidence that when you leave this planet, you're going to be okay when you stand before God. You can understand that God's no longer angry at you and that your relationship with God has been completely set right. It's all been corrected by his once and for all sacrifice. I know I quote it oftentimes, but gee, I just like it so very much. Hebrews 10.14 says that he perfected forever all those that he sanctified in his death. Perfected forever. And there's no question about what the Greek words mean. It means he satisfied God utterly and completely and eternally on your behalf by his resurrection. Perfected forever all those that he sanctified. Okay, well, that's really good news. Because if you're anything like me, you don't feel perfect. Anybody in this room feeling perfect? I mean, physically or emotionally or spiritually. There's nobody in this room that has reached perfect. When you say to folks, how are you? Nobody ever goes, perfect. They might go, I'm fine. I'm okay. I shouldn't tell you this, but... Oh, we're here. I'm going to. For the last couple of years, when people have said to me, how are you? My standard response is, I'm okay for an old guy. And then it used to be that they would chuckle and say something kind like, oh, you're not that old. I've noticed lately they've stopped correcting me. What does that say about me? Anyway... If he got up from the grave, then you're going to be okay eternally, and that should give you a tremendous amount of hope and confidence. But if he didn't get up out of the grave, then everything else he said was a lie. Christianity is a lie because it is written on the presumption that he actually did get up from the grave. He and Christianity deserve to be completely written off as one of the greatest hoaxes of history if he didn't get up. Out of the grave. So it all comes down to that. All right, turn to Romans 1 for a moment, and I will start demonstrating to you that in Pauline New Testament, New Covenant theology, the resurrection is central. Romans 1, I'm going to start right at verse 1. And notice how Paul cannot even introduce his letter without putting the resurrection front and center. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Paul said that is the declaration that Jesus is actually the son of God, the fact that he got up out of the grave. Because he walked around on the planet saying things about himself that are absolutely impossible if he's not the son of God. And so the demonstration, the proof positive, according to Paul, that he is the son of God is the power that raised him up from the dead. His Son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. By the way... We use that word Lord a lot here in Christian circles. It means absolute master. It means owner. It means the one who has all authority over you. If he got up from the grave, he has every right to impose himself on your life. As the son of God, he has every right to interrupt your egocentric little life and say to you, you're mine now, and expect you to act like it, to live like it, to respond to it. By his Holy Spirit, he will quicken your heart and mind so that you can understand his word. And as you're understanding the Old Testament and you're seeing things like Adam and Eve, or you're seeing things like Jonah, or you're seeing things like Noah, he then can come along and say, that was all about me. That was all pointing to me. I am the satisfaction of the complete Old Testament and all the prophets, just like Paul said here. That he was promised beforehand through all the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus walked around saying, that's all about me. Okay, that's lunacy if he's not the Son of God. And the proof that he is the Son of God is that he got up again. And if he rose from the grave, then he is the fulfillment and the satisfaction. He is the substance that cast the shadow all the way through the old testament as paul said here he is god's son who was born a descendant of david according to the flesh he was declared to be the son of god with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness jesus christ our lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as Hagias, as the saints, as the holy ones, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul couldn't even say, hi, how are you, at the beginning of his letter, without pointing out the centrality of the resurrection as the definitive proof that Jesus is who he said he is. And because he is who he said he is, and because he got up out of the grave, you now have grace with God. You now have peace with God. But if he didn't get up out of the grave, you don't have any peace you don't have any comfort, you don't have any hope if Jesus did not get up out of the grave. It all hinges on the resurrection or else the entirety of Christianity is a lie. Now you can turn if you'd like to to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be there for a few minutes. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to start reading at verse 12. Because in all of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is arguing about the resurrection. Why is he arguing about it? Because among the Jews, the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. And so there was this whole contingent of the Jewish leadership that would argue against Christianity because Christianity is based on the resurrection of Christ. And if you deny resurrection, or that resurrection does or can exist, then of course you're going to argue against Christianity because you have the a priori position that resurrection cannot exist. And so Paul is defending resurrection in chapter 15. I'm going to start reading at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached... That he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So that's Paul's way of saying, okay, all of you who are walking around thinking that there is no resurrection of the dead, you're, (coughs) what's that word? Wrong. Wrong. You're wrong because Jesus himself got up from the dead. And he has a whole lot of witnesses. And we all know it firsthand, as Tom read just a moment ago, we are firsthand witnesses to the fact that Jesus is alive and well. And if he died and got up again, how do you have as a theological premise that there is no resurrection? They can point to Jesus and say, Resurrection. So that's Paul's argument here. Now, if Christ is preached that he was raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is, if you're right, if the Sadducees are correct, if there is no resurrection, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then first off, our preaching is vain, empty, pointless, what Paul has given his whole life to. Paul is out there preaching a resurrected Christ, but if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ resurrected, and if Christ did not resurrect, then what am I out here preaching about? My preaching is completely pointless and vain. But also, your faith in God, your faith in salvation, even your faith in Christ as the one who will stand in the gap between you and a completely holy God, that's all vain. That's all pointless if there is no resurrection. So, if you're right, all we get is hopelessness. Whereas, if I'm right about Christ being resurrected from the dead, then there's grace and there's peace and there's forgiveness, there's power, there's authority, there's the Holy Spirit. All of these good things emanate from the resurrection of Christ, and you're arguing that there is no resurrection. If you're right, nothing good comes from that. Because if Christ is not raised, our preaching is vain. And your faith is vain. And moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God himself because we ended up witnessing against God by saying that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. You understand Paul's argument? I mean, it's a really brilliant argument. It's a wonderful demonstration of how to use logic. But we're going to be found false witnesses of God. Notice that Paul, his a priori position is, God exists. No matter what you do with Christ, God exists. Yahweh is, always has been, always will be. And you're going to stand before him, and he's going to judge you. And he's going to judge you according to his own holiness, his own righteousness, his own standard, Even Jesus, when he was here on the planet, said, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise see the kingdom of heaven. So where are you going to get that kind of righteousness? It's certainly not going to be your activity. It's certainly not going to be your fleshly ability to impress God with your goodness. So where are you going to get that righteousness that has to be more than the Pharisees who were the guys who were trying to keep the law? And Jesus said, they're not good enough, and you're not good enough, and you're going to stand before God, and you're going to be judged. Paul does not question the fact that Yahweh exists and that he is going to judge people. The question is, did he raise Christ from the dead so that Christ is ever living to make intercession for us? The demonstration that he is there interceding for us is that God raised him from the dead. But you who say there's no resurrection, if you're right, then there is no resurrection of Christ. And if there is no resurrection of Christ, then we who are Christian are liars because we're out here telling people that God raised Jesus from the dead who he didn't raise from the dead if there's no resurrection. Because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith in Him, in salvation, in God's grace, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sins. There's no deliverance from sin. If Jesus died and then stayed dead, there's no difference between that and every other human who ever lived on planet Earth who ever died and stayed dead. And that would be several billion people so far who have been on planet Earth and died and stayed dead. And not a one of them can help you. Not a one of them can redeem you. Not a one of them can do anything about your sin. You're still in your sin, and you're going to stand before the righteous holy God, and he's going to judge you according to your sinfulness if Christ is not raised. So if the Sadducees were right, then it's nothing but bad news. Not only that, but if Christ is not raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Uh, Part of my job Uh, It's not one of my favorite parts of my job, but one of the parts of my job that I end up having to do is that I preach funerals. And funerals are hard to preach, but they're easier when you know the person who died was a believer in Christ and has gone on to their reward. In fact, as we stand around the gravesite crying, I often think, you know, we're all crying, and they're really happy right now. They're a whole lot happier than I am. And why can we think that? Why can we believe that? Because we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, was their Savior. And so now they are united with their Lord. What a wonderful thing. But if Jesus did not raise from the dead, says Paul, then those who have died in Christ... Those Christians we know who have already gone on before us, those who have already passed away, have no hope whatsoever. Here we are taking comfort in the idea, in the knowledge that they are with their Lord, that they are in the arms of their Savior even now. That is greatly comforting, and if he didn't rise from the dead, take all that comfort away because they're dead and they're judged and they're in hell now. So where's the comfort? Then those who have already fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, think about what Paul's saying. He's saying if Jesus walking around on the planet, the supposed good and wise teacher, if he walked around saying good things, which is the way so many people categorize him, So many people just say, well, he was a good and a wise guy. He was a smart teacher. He said some good things. That whole do unto others thing, I'm with that. He walked around encouraging people to be good, live good (coughs) lives, don't do bad stuff. I'm with him. That's all fine. But then they deny his eternality. They deny his divinity. They deny that he rose again from the grave, that he ascended to God and is sitting at God's right hand right now. So they have hope in Christ only in this life. The only benefit they are gaining from Christ is whatever this life could provide them. Jesus said some good things. I lived according to the things he said. It made my life somewhat better. So Paul said, if he didn't get up from the grave, that's all you get. All you get is whatever you gained from the things he said. But if our entire hope in Christ is in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Because Paul knows we're going to live this lifetime thinking we're okay. And then we're going to get before God and fry, we're going to get before God and be judged be cast into outer darkness. So all you get from Christ if all you think he was was a good philosopher, a good guy who said some good things, if that's all you think of Christ, then Paul says, you're to be pitied. You are of all men most miserable. Because you think Christ is just another person rather than the son of God which the resurrection demonstrates. But Paul is not content to just leave it there. He's not content to just leave you with, oh no, what if he's not raised? He makes the declarative statement, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who are asleep. Remember last week and the week before as we were talking about the covenants, but last week we talked about the fact that Jesus died on Passover and that he was put in the grave at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in that week long Feast of Unleavened Bread, there is a Sunday, a first day of the week somewhere in that week. And that first day of the week was designated as first fruits. And so Paul would say since Jesus got up on the Feast of First Fruits, perfectly fulfilling that type and shadow of that feast, he could say Christ is the firstfruits of all those who are asleep. And the beautiful part about firstfruits is you would bring God the firstfruit of your harvest in anticipation of the complete harvest to come. And God would bless the harvest to come as you brought your first of your fruit to him. Same idea. Christ got up out of the grave. I'm, I like to think, I'm saved. I think I'm going to be okay when I stand before God. I think I'm going to live forever in God's glory in his kingdom. I am looking forward to the new Jerusalem. And if Christ didn't get up, none of that's true. But if he did in fact get up, and he is the first fruit of the resurrection, then that's the guarantee that a harvest is coming. And that would be us. Mm -hmm. Christ is the first fruit paving the way to the resurrection, demonstrating that everything else that God has promised us is actually true. And that gives us the hope, the confidence, the looking forward to our resurrection, because he resurrected. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that's Adam and his sin, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Adam, and some people find this to be uh, unfair, Adam's sin, Adam's rebellion against God was imputed to all of mankind. That's why people die. If you don't think that Adam's sin was imputed to you, you can prove it. It's very easily. Just don't die. Just don't get old. Don't get sick. Don't die. That's all you got to do. You do that, you can prove that the Bible's wrong. But because the Bible's true, every one of us are getting old and getting sick and dying. So far, the ratio of death is a perfect one for one. Everybody gets one. Proving that Adam's sin was imputed To all mankind, by one man came death. The wages of sin is death. The Bible talks a lot about death. Human history talks a lot about death. Death is unavoidable. It is inevitable. Death is coming. But so is resurrection. Because by one man came the resurrection from the dead. Everybody in all of humanity is in Adam, therefore everyone is sinful in Adam's posterity. Everyone who is in Christ and has Christ in them also has that first resurrection that we read about in Revelation 20. We all have that to look forward to. If you're in Adam, you're dead. If you're in Adam in Christ, you ever live. Turn to 1 Peter. Let's do that. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 3. Peter does the exact same thing. He cannot describe Christianity without putting the resurrection of Christ central. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be regenerated, to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we have hope. That's why we have faith and confidence. That's why we're not afraid of death. That is why we're not afraid of judgment. Because our advocate ever lives to make intercession for us, demonstrated and proved by the fact that he resurrected from the dead. And... The fact that we are regenerated, that we are born again, that we have the Holy Spirit of God inside us. Jesus said to his disciples, it's beneficial for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, then the Holy Spirit doesn't come. And so the very fact that we have the Spirit of God demonstrates that Christ is alive and that God was satisfied with his sacrifice. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow Wow is right. Reveal some of that to me. I'm looking forward to that. If you'd like, turn to Romans 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 22, and I'm going to read all the way into chapter 5, so it would probably be worth turning there. This is Paul talking about faith being reckoned to Abram. God told Abram that he was going to have a child, that all the land of Canaan that did not belong to him was going to belong to him and to his descendants forever. And then it says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's the word amen. It's the word from which we get amen. Abraham amened God, and that was counted to him for righteousness. Romans 4.22, therefore also it was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, for whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in the God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead he who was delivered up because of our transgressions, Okay, so get this right last week in talking about the Passover and the death of Christ and in memorializing the death of Christ we said he is the lamb of God, he is the perfect sin sacrifice to take away the sin of all his people so he died to be the complete reconciliation for our transgressions against God. That's why he died. But if he died and stayed dead, then that reconciliatory work that he did doesn't matter. He also had to demonstrate that God approved and accepted of that sacrifice. And so Paul writes... He was delivered up. He was killed because of our transgressions, our sins. But he was raised up from the dead for our dechiosis, for our justification. The reason you are justified before God today is because Jesus got up from the dead the demonstration, the proof that God accepted his sacrificial work and accepted it completely, which is why I began this morning by saying he didn't try to save anybody. He actually saved his people and he died for their transgressions, oh, happy day, (laughs) and then got up again as a demonstration that God accepted that sacrifice, thereby justifying Guilty sinners like us. That's happy stuff. I'm talking about eternal justification as a result of the resurrection from the dead, proving that God fully accepted our sin sacrifice for all of our sins and transgressions so that we are, what's that word I used earlier? Saved. We are saved by the finished work of Christ demonstrated by the resurrection not for our sake or not for his sake only was it written that righteousness was reckoned to him but for our sakes also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in the God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead he who was delivered up because of our transgressions And was raised again because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we celebrate, we exult in hope. Of the glory of God. Okay, so all the exaltation, all of the hope, all of the confidence, all of the looking forward to the grace of God on our behalf, all of that is based on God accepting the finished work of Christ demonstrated by the resurrection. Take the resurrection out of that paragraph, you got nothing. You got nothing to look forward to but the judgment of God. If you want, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15 again, because as I mentioned, this is Paul's great treatise on resurrection. Now we're going to read the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, and the reason I held on to this is because this is one of the earliest historic Christian creeds, and so Paul writes it right into his letter to the church at Corinth. This is something that was already being said. He was just putting it in writing. This was the declaration of the earliest Christians. One of the things that I really appreciate about the New Testament writers is they talk about Christ and his resurrection as a fact. They don't say, you know, accept it because I tell you. They didn't say, accept it because that will be beneficial to you psychologically. What they state are just hard, cold, definitive facts. And your only choice is to line up with those facts or reject those facts. You don't have any other choice. It's not about your feeling. It's not about what you think of it. These are facts. These things happened. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren... The gospel which I preach to you, which also you have received, in which also you now stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. So this isn't something that Paul made up, this is what has already been the Christian faith, this is core to everything that Christians believe, Paul also received this, and now he is reciting it, it is the very essence of what the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins, and the prophets all predicted that, so it's according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he raised again on the third day, which was also in accordance with the prophets, with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more Than all of them, and yet, not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it is I or it is they, so we preach and so you believe. So what is the essence of what Paul taught and preached? The essence of what the apostles promoted? The essential belief that is shared by all Christianity? It's the very thing that Paul delivered of first importance that Christ died for our sins exactly like the scripture said would happen then he was buried and then he raised on the third day exactly like the scripture said he was going to do and then he was seen by a whole bunch of people the reason that Paul takes the time to list all the people who ever saw him alive is because Paul in stating his facts says go check with them they're alive You can find them. They saw him. They talked with him. They ate with him. And he lists all the people you can go check with because it is a fact that Jesus Christ got up from the grave. Now, within 50 days of Passover comes the Feast of Pentecost. It's important to remember that within 50 days, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. Peter, Peter, Mr. Sandal and Mouth. Peter always saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. Peter, who swore three times, I don't know him. <laughs> you're mistaken. I wasn't with him. Peter, who ran away to save his own skin out of fear of persecution. That Peter, 50 days later, stood up in front of the Jews and said, you with wicked hands killed the prince of life. Something changed in Peter. Something dramatic happened to Peter. I would argue that it's because he saw the risen Lord. Just like Paul said, he appeared first to Cephas. And once he saw him, that changed everything for Peter. Once Peter knew he was up and alive, Peter had no fear going in front of the Jews on the day of Pentecost and say, you're wicked. And you killed the Prince of Life. And he got up again. Because he wasn't able to be held by death. Do you want to read it real quick? Acts 2. Turn to Acts 2. I'll start reading at verse 22. Listen to these words. Because Peter states all of this as fact. He doesn't say, if you're willing to believe it, or if you're willing to choose Jesus, or make him Lord and Savior, then maybe he can do something good for you. No, he states facts. Acts 2, starting at verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. He's calling them to account. He's saying, You saw him? He was right here, he wasn't hidden. And you saw the miracles. You saw the lame man walking. You saw the blind man seeing. You saw the miracles. You saw the demons driven out. You saw the miracles, and you know he did them. Listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know this man, Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. How does Peter know that? Because it was all according to the scriptures. It was already written down. The prophets already predicted it. Nothing happened to Jesus that wasn't already foretold. Therefore, we know for a fact that God predetermined it all. And it happened according to God's plan. And God had the foreknowledge, had the complete understanding of all of it. And so Jesus, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. Notice that Peter just said, you are godless, and you killed the prince of life, and God predetermined you would do that. Kind of undermines the whole free will thing, doesn't it? And God says, verse 24, And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for Christ to be held by the power of death. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken, and therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue celebrated, exalted, moreover my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou will not abandon my soul to hell, to the grave, to Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, and thou will make me full of gladness in your presence. Peter quoted that from King David in order to demonstrate one of the places where the Old Testament prophets predicted the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the resulting hope that comes from that. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding our patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this very day. And so, because he was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn with him an oath, To seat one of his descendants on his throne, that would be the Davidic covenant. That's why we've been talking about the covenants in the Bible. Because David knew the Davidic covenant, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. First-hand witness, that's the best witness you can get. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit which he has poured forth, this thing which you also see and hear, it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he, David himself, says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Facts, just plain, simple facts. Yes, we have faith in Jesus Christ, but our faith is a result of the fact that the Holy Spirit is inhabiting us And therefore, we understand the full, complete, finished, redemptive work of Jesus Christ that is verified by the historic fact that he got up out of the grave. Here's my point, and I do have one. Here's my point. Christianity is far too often preached as something you have to accept. Something you have to believe in. And then it becomes good for you. It becomes like a panacea for you. It improves your life or your thinking or your emotion in some way. It's not the way any of the New Testament writers approached it. The New Testament writers promoted and preached Christianity based on these are facts. And the first fact they all went to immediately was he's up. He's out of the grave. You killed him, and he's alive. Without that fact, you have no hope. You have no confidence. You have nothing to look forward to but God's judgment. And if he got up again, you have hope and confidence and faith and grace and the Spirit of God preserving you as the down payment of everything else that God has promised you. I am very, very nearly done. Sort of. Okay, so there's historic witnesses. That's the great part about Christianity for the last 2,000 years. We actually have history. We have facts. We have things we can go and look at. The details remain the details. They don't change. The historic details are still there. You can go back and look at them. In years past, we have gone through the process of proving the resurrection, demonstrating historically that there's no other explanation for the history. The history of Christianity, the history of the Middle East, the history of Christianity getting a foothold in Jerusalem. There's no way to explain those historic realities if there is no resurrection. The essence of the Christian message comes down to this. Christ died. He was buried, he resurrected, he ascended to God's right hand, he is returning to judge the quick and the dead, and he's going to set up his everlasting kingdom in keeping with the Davidic covenant. Those are inarguable facts that lay as the basis, the very heart of Christianity. And anywhere historically that you find the Christian message being proclaimed, Those are the facts that you find. Remove those facts. You don't have Christianity. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Acts 17, 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. I started with Jesus saying, you don't get any sign but this one sign. Just like Jonah, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth three days, three nights. I'm getting up again. It's the only sign you get. It's the only proof you get. Here's the declaration that God is going to judge all men in the whole world. Therefore, all men should repent because he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has appointed. We know that that is Jesus Christ, and he has furnished proof to the entire world that he is going to judge the world by Christ, and the proof that he has offered is the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the demonstration that God is alive and he is a judge, and he's going to judge the world. Therefore, run to Christ! Amen. If the resurrection's true, then everything Jesus said about himself is true, and the validity of the Old Testament prophecies about him, every one of them, are confirmed if he got up out of the grave. If the resurrection's true, then he is currently our ever living. Savior, Redeemer, Intercessor, who is making intercession for us all, which is why the writer of Hebrews would say he is able to save us to the uttermost. Look, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. Sometimes people will say to me, I could never be a Christian. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't want to know. Keep your mess to yourself. Don't tell me about it. Don't go around sharing. But God knows. He knows every single bit of it. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins and your transgressions. Therefore, he is ever living to make intercession for us Therefore, he saves us to the uttermost. We sin to the uttermost. If you're anything like me, you've pushed that whole uttermost thing on your sinfulness and your rebellion and the moments in your life where I'm like, don't bug me, God. I want to do this. You know the corruption of your own heart. You know the corruption of your flesh. That's why we need a savior who can save us. Utterly and completely to the uttermost. And he is always living, sitting at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us, saving us to the uttermost. He got up from the grave because it was not fitting for the one who has all power in heaven and earth to be held by death and the grave. Which means when he resurrected, he proved he's God. And if that is true, then we have hope. We have confidence. We can go through this insane world, this remarkably stupid world, having confidence that this isn't the end. We can look forward to the day when he returns, and the guarantee that he's going to return to get us is that he got up from the grave. You get it? Good Pretty good news. news, Pretty good news. That's wonderful.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.